0: Welcome to the Making Hay Podcast with Marcia Miller from RFG Advisory. In this podcast, we help veterinarians, from new graduates to seasoned practitioners, navigate the sometimes tricky waters of personal finance. We all know the saying, making hay while the sun shines. As cheesy as it sounds, it represents a lot of what we help people do in their financial lives and businesses. We know each of you faces unique challenges and we're here to offer advice tailored just for you, anchored in service, stewardship, and a genuine understanding of your profession. Join Marsha Miller, your guide on this journey. Marsha has spent over 25 years in financial services, and her passion is helping vets like you get a handle on your finances. Tune in to each episode as we meet at the intersection of veterinary practice and financial management. With help from expert guests and insights from Marsha's own experience, we're going to tackle your biggest financial questions head on.
1: Welcome to the Making Hay Podcast with Marsha Miller. Marsha, good to be with you again.
2: Hi, Bill. Good to see you too.
1: You've got a pretty interesting guest today, so let's tell folks about him. Yeah. Rick Waddell, he is the Chief Investment Officer at RFG Advisory Corporate. He joined as a partner and the CIO back in 2016, but he has 23 years in the business. He went to Harvard where he graduated with honors, and then he went to Stanford for his graduate degree and graduated number one in his class. This guy's kind of impressive, Marsha. So I can't yes, wait to hear what he bit. has to say. Yeah, yes. just, just
3: a time. By, by the way, yeah. I, I love doing these podcasts because I get the rush of that intro, which is fantastic. Uh, I'll go home <laughs> later tonight and my kids will tell me I'm no big deal, so that's totally fine. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, it. kids
1: are a great leveler, man. They're, they're
3: they are, like Seriously. very what? level, level it out, yeah, exactly. level it out. Well, thank you for having me on. It's it's great to be here. It's yeah, great to be you here. Thank for
2: joining us, Rick. Today, we're going to talk all things practice owners. So, for any of you veterinarians out there who are either a, currently a practice owner or if you aspire to be a practice owner, this episode is for you. And so, we're going to start out with, Rick, um, what are a few things that are the most important financial considerations a practice owner should consider?
3: Yeah, you know, probably the single biggest financial planning, you know, mistake or or thing that a practice owner needs to think about really comes down to the need to not just rely on your practice as your retirement plan. And what when I say that, that really just comes down to a very simple math problem related to the rule of four. So can you just tell me really quickly from financial planning perspective what the rule of four is?
2: Absolutely. So the rule of four means that generally you take the balance in all of your investment accounts, you look at your total money and that you can kind of loosely as a rule of thumb, pull somewhere around 4%, Per year out of that portfolio and not run into the risk of running out of money in your lifetime.
3: That's exactly right. And, you know, that's a distribution rate that, you know, once again, rule of thumb, if you work with a financial planner, you get a lot more refined answer on that, which is one of the reasons why most people do. But as a general rule of thumb, 4% is a good, you know, metric to have in your mind. So, if I'm a practice owner and I've got, we're just going to make math very, very simple here. I'm a practice owner and I'm pulling a million dollars a year out of my practice. This is a, a very, very profitable you know, veterinary practice. Once again, working with big round numbers. And I go and I sell that practice and I get like a super premium multiple for it. I get like 15 times EBITDA. I've got $15 million to play around with in terms of you know the assets that are going into my retirement portfolio, right? So awesome. I earned a million dollars a year coming up to this. That was my take-home pay. And then I sold it for 15 times. And I brought home 15 million bucks and I go to my financial planner and my financial planner says, all right, rule of four, you're going to be able to take out roughly... $600,000 a year, right? And that's a problem because $600,000 is not $1 million. It's actually not even close to $1 million. And most people, when they retire, don't want to take a massive step down in income. They don't want to say, oh, yeah, I used to earn a $1 million a year. Now I'm retired. I've got all this free time, but I've got 40% less disposable income. Okay? All right. So the single biggest thing, the single biggest mistake that people make when they think about being a practice owner, and by the way, this is true for all small business owners, is, well, my retirement savings is my practice. I own my practice. It's going to be worth a lot of money and that's fine. And so I'll just sell it and then I'll live off the proceeds from that sale. And what most people find is, is that when you get to that sale point, even if you get a giant check at the end, it's normally not enough to maintain the style of living or the standard of living that you've become accustomed to. And so most people need to save in addition to selling their practice. They need to do financial planning work beforehand. They need to have retirement accounts. They need to have IRAs. They need to have all these other things set up that will supplement the value of their practice and not just to be solely reliant on the value of the practice. That's the single biggest financial planning thing that practice owners need to think about because if you if you run it the other way you normally wind up disappointed at the end.
2: Exactly, and who who was to say that there's going to be a 15x multiple?
3: That's exactly right, all
2: over the place as well. You know,
3: we did those multiples at the very kind of top end of the ranges. We'll talk about those ranges, I'm sure, later on in the podcast. Yeah. But if you start to even drop that multiple towards what be, be more normal or reasonable multiples, the math just gets harder. So,
2: yeah. so what are some of those financial metrics that a practice owner? A veterinarian should be looking at what should he be paying, he or she be paying attention
3: to? Yeah, absolutely. Well, when buyers buy things, fundamentally, you're buying cash flow, right? And then second, you're buying growth of that cash flow. Right. So whenever we think about purchasing something, we're thinking about, okay, I'm going to give you an upfront payment and I'm going to get a stream of cash flows later on as a result of buying this thing. And hopefully that stream of cash flows is growing over time. Larger, higher margin businesses, so larger businesses that turn more of their revenue into cash flow, more of their revenue into profit, typically command premium multiples versus smaller businesses. Those are businesses that generally command lower multiples of cash flow. At the end of the day, when you go to sell your business, you're ultimately going to get a multiple of the cash flow that you generate. And really what we're trying to do as we move things around in the practice is how do we generate the best multiple possible? So whether I've got $500,000 of earnings or $100,000 of earnings or a million dollars of earnings, what we're really trying to do is think about, okay... When I go to sell those earnings to a buyer what is the multiple that they're going to pay on top of that? Is it six times? Is it eight times? Is it 10 times? Is it 15 times? You know what, what is that multiplier effect that I get for the cash flow that my business is generating? You need to monitor your sales. You need to monitor your sales growth. Growing cash flows are better than, uh, than shrinking cash flows. You also need to keep an eye on any type of... So first and foremost, when a buyer buys a business, they are buying a stream of cash flow. Right. So, uh, when they, the whole reason why they're buying you is because they want to earn the earnings that you've been earning in the future. Okay. And so it goes without saying that the higher those earnings are, the more valuable you are. Right. So thinking about things like what is my cash flow out of the business is the most basic of, you know, multi uh, sorry, value drivers that you can get is how much money am I taking out of this business on an annual basis? And what is the growth stream of that earning stream look like over time? Is my business flat? Is it growing? Is it declining? Obviously, growing businesses are worth more than others. Now, all else equal, buyers are also thinking about what multiple they want to play for that earnings stream. Multiple just means okay if a business is you know if a business is generating hundred thousand dollars a year in earnings. Am I going to pay them six times, to so 600000 Am I going to pay them 10 times, you know, a million dollars? Like, what is that multiplier effect of the earnings that I'm purchasing to get me to a total purchase price? And that multiple generally depends on things like what's your margin structure? So are you you know, running on a shoestring margin and just barely squeaking by? You're earning 10 cents about every dollar that comes through the door or are your margins more healthy? Are they 15, 20, 25% in the industry? That's more, higher margin practices tend to be more profitable. Are you growing? Growing prof- practices tend to be more valuable. And also how large are you? So bigger practices, all else equal, tend to be more valuable. And this is something that you might want to think about if you're a sole practitioner. You know, Sometimes, believe it or not, partnering up with three or four of your good buddies and combining the practice into one can make your share of the pie more valuable than it would be on a standalone business. Partnering also comes along with certain organizational challenges, which we can talk about. But it's something to think about as you think about drivers of value within the practice two other things that you need to think about as you're thinking about you know, uh, your financial metrics. The first is keep in mind that you are both an owner and an employee of the practice. And what I mean by that is, look, if you're taking $200,000 a year out of your practice and your plan is to retire and not be there anymore, your math needs to go through the the analysis of, okay, what's it gonna hi- cost to hire somebody to replace the work that I'm doing? right? And you gotta be honest about that, right? Because somebody who's coming in, if they're truly buying the business is gonna have to hire somebody to replace the work that you're doing in the practice. And that's an excess cost. That's an cost in addition to what you're currently charging. If that's gonna cost $100,000, then your profit's really 100,000, not 200,000. And last but not least, you should always think about, particularly for smaller practices, is there anything in my financials that is going to make me more or less difficult for a third party to acquire? Okay. So this is something to think about when you start to think about, you know, purchasing big pieces of equipment or signing a really long term lease for your building or owning your building as opposed to leasing it. All of these things kind of lock the new buyer of the practice into financial arrangements that they may or may not want. Okay. (laughs) And so, the cleaner the business is when you go to sell it, where you can kind of look at the buyer and be like, hey, you want to keep this, you want to get rid of it, you want to close the office, you want to keep the office open, you want to do this, that, and the other. That's all kind of your decision because we don't have any sort of long-term contracts or liabilities out there. That's something that you can do to just you know generally make the practice easier to sell going forward.
2: Great point. Such good information. Thank you, Rick. So you've given us a lot to think about there, but how can how can a practice owner really look at and assess the overall financial health of their business?
3: Well, so first and foremost, you can generally feel it, right? Like, I mean, you can generally, like, you're the one taking the cash flows out of the business. If it feels like every year you're just kind of scraping by and, you know, that there's that tenseness, then my guess is is that you're either investing a ton of money back into the practice for growth, or it's just not a very healthy practice to begin with. And you really need to, you know, at that point, take a look at your cost structure, take a look at what you're doing and think about, well, how do I optimize this? How do I make it better? How do I generate more? You need to go through all the sacred cows that are on the PL and and think about, you know, do I really need the staff that I have? Do I really need the location that I have? Do I need to change up hours? Do I need to do more advertising, bring in more business? You know, kind of think about all those things to try and improve the practice. Right. The flip side is, is if every year your earnings are increasing and life feels pretty comfortable and you're you know, pulling a lot of money out of the practice, then yeah, that's probably a pretty healthy practice. Like you will be able to feel it. Typically within the industry, EBITDA margins tend to range from about 10% to about 25%. If you're at the low end of that range, your practice probably needs a little bit of work from a profitability standpoint. If you're at the high end of that range, then maybe actually sometimes when you're at the high end of that range, that might mean you need need to be doing a little bit more investment into the business in terms of driving sales or driving additional product flow or driving technology through the business. You know, we generally tend to like to see people that are somewhere in the middle of that range, not wildly at the top profitable, but also not wildly, you know, running on a shoestring budget.
2: Right. Excellent. So we've got a lot of veterinarians listening that are practice owners that are in different stages of their practice ownership. So we've got ones starting out new, we've got them, um, you know, in the middle and, and a lot that are close to the end of their career or they're thinking about selling. Why is it important and crucial for veterinarians, practice owners to start thinking about exit planning.
3: Yeah. And this is one of these things where exit planning really comes down to what do you want your exit to look like? Okay. So we'll put it out on a spectrum there. Right. You know, and and I'll say, you know, exit planning. Option number one is I'm going to sell to one of the big corporate aggregators and they're going to roll up my practice under their corporate practice. And, you know, that's going to be my exit strategy. And all the way at the other side of the table is, you know, hey, I'm going to bring on a junior, uh, you know, into my practice, somebody that will, you know, will partner in the business. I will teach them the ways of the industry. And then over time, I will gradually retire and this individual kind of buy me out. Okay. And the interesting thing is, certainly that latter scenario needs to be planned for. Right. Because, hey, where are we going to get this junior person? Right. Like, where did they come from? Uh, You know, typically we want them to have worked in the practice for a number of years before we're sort of ready to hand over the keys. If you're handing over the keys to that individual, then, you know, you're placing a lot of risk and and faith in them, candidly, that they're going to be able to continue to run the practice going forward. What's not as well recognized, but is equally true is if I'm planning to sell to one of these corporate aggregators, well, there are ways that I can make my practice more valuable to them. What I think is often overlooked, though, is that if you're planning to sell to one of these corporate aggregators, there are steps that you can take to make your practice more valuable to them, right? Like right. I can position my practice to be bought by one of these individuals. In ways that, you know, whether it's equipment offerings that you know they want to see or don't want to see, whether that's that real estate strategy that we were talking about before, like, Am I, you know, gonna be their standalone office in this particular geography? Or am I gonna be rolled up into eventually one of their corporate offices, you know, nearby? Right. Like this is these are the types of things that make it very important early on to identify who is my buyer. Right. Right? Like, what is my ultimate exit strategy? Who do I want that to be? And then let me try and position myself for what that looks like. Right. Even the corporate aggregators typically will want you to stay on in the practice and work for a couple of years afterwards to ensure a smooth transition. Right. So we're really talking about like this needs the worst thing you can do to yourself is just like, you know, hey, I'm obliviously kind of going through life and I'm 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 working and everything else I got. And by the way, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably not in that camp. But the worst thing that you can do to yourself is be like, oh, you know, I think I'll retire when I'm 60. And so when I'm 59 and a half, I pick up my head and be like, okay well, what am I going to do with my practice? Right. Because now time is not our friend. We haven't positioned ourselves for any type of exit, and we're basically just going to have to take whatever the best deal is that comes along, which is probably not where you want to be if you're thinking about trying to maximize the value of the asset that you created in retirement.
2: Yeah, that would be the worst place to be. So not paying attention is not a good thing for sure. For sure. What are some common misconceptions that practice owners have about exit planning? I mean, where, where are they not seeing
3: yeah. Well, so I think the first and most common misconception is this notion that, well, the aggregators are out there paying 15 times EBITDA for practices. And so that's what my practice is worth. OK, here's how this industry works. OK, when somebody pays, you know, 12, 13, 14 times for something, it makes headlines. And so everybody focuses on it. Right. Normally, those practices have unique features to them that make them particularly valuable, right? So they are multiple doctor practices, typically very large practices in growing areas. They're not your sort of -of run-of-the-mill practice. Okay. So just don't anchor yourself as you're thinking about financial planning on a multiple that's at the high end of that range. Maybe, you know, anchor yourself somewhere in the middle of what you think your practice might be worth. Uh, And that way, if you wind up at the higher end of that range, we're pleasantly surprised as opposed to being disappointed if we're not at the very top. The second thing that I think is crucially important to understand is. There is a wide range of trade off that goes along between valuation and control. Okay. So, once again, at two opposite ends of the spectrum, if I sell to the big corporate aggregator, they can pay me a huge premium. My business, right? Like they have access to very deep pockets, access to public capital markets. Um, They are very, very well funded enterprises. They are generally using equity dollars. They have cash to be able to invest. And these individuals are going to take you and they're going to roll you up into their practice. And then they're going to dictate to you exactly how your office should be run because that's the way these practices work, right? Like, you know, there's standardization there, there's a lot of cross selling opportunities. You are not not going to be calling the shots right like uh you will get paid a lot for it but at the end of the day you better be okay with doing whatever it is that corporate tells you because now they own you At the other end of that spectrum is I've hired a junior and I've brought them along in the business and I'm teaching them the way that I like to run a practice and the way that I like to treat clients and the way that I like to do things and all of those types of things. Well, now I'm going to sell my business to that individual. I have a whole lot of control over what that sale process looks like and how the operations of my practice look and what our hours are, for example, and all these other things. But the difference is, is that that junior veterinarian probably doesn't have access to millions and millions of dollars of free cash laying around. And so we're going to have to get creative on how we structure the buyout of the practice to, you know, from the senior partner to that junior partner. And that normally means we have to get creative that we get less money at the end of the day right? So multiples tend to be on the lower end of the scale. You get a lot more control, a lot more flexibility, and a lot more, you know, I can do what I want with my life, but there's a trade-off there. And everybody should understand that trade-off as they walk through and think about what do I want those retirement years to look like? What do I want those last, you know, 5, 10 years of my practice to look like? Do I want to be looking at a giant check in the bank, but also, you know, beholden to whatever corporate wants? Or do I want to be, you know, working with my junior partner and being able to call all the shots? for the most part, but also know that, you know, at the end of the day I may have left some money on the table for that freedom and that control. Very important for folks to think about and realize as they yeah. go into the process.
2: Very very important. And it it also just reminds me to what we've already talked about, the importance of working with a financial advisor. I mean, how much money do you need to retire? How much do you need to sell your practice for? You know, a lot of people they have no clue. They're yep. just hoping they get to the finish line and it all works out okay. They're on the hope schedule, you know, but yep. um, that's where we can bring in some expertise and help them with that. So,
3: Well, and not to get all too behavioral, finance uh, but the reality is that the studies are pretty clear. <laughs> that the total amount of money that you have does not determine how happy you are at the end of the day. Very true. Uh you know, it's it's really more about life there's a lot of other factors that go into it, lifestyle, freedom, control, fulfillment, you know, all of these different things that go yeah. into it. And so like you know, I've kind of laid it out as a spectrum to say like look, do you want a huge check but no control or do you want, you know, total control but a lower check? it's totally okay to be like, yeah, I want total control and I'm willing to take a lower check for it. Uh, You know, that's totally fine. Uh, You just need to work with a planner to make sure that you've got your plan in place for, okay, this is how this is all going to work and I'm comfortable with it. And, you know, that's, that makes the most sense. Don't get locked into the mentality of, you know, whoever has the most money, like wins, you know, pound the chest because uh, the reality is, is that there are, reams and reams and reams of data and behavioral analysis out there that would suggest that that's not actually the case in any way, shape or form. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And living a life of high happiness is what it's all about.
3: That's exactly right. That's exactly right.
2: So what is the ideal timeline then for putting together an exit strategy? When When should we start thinking about that?
3: You know, I like to tell people five years is kind of like a minimum. Okay. Okay. So, if we're already within that five-year window, then we're gonna have to do a little bit of scrambling and kind of think about okay, if you know maybe my option set starts to get a little limited in terms of what I can do and what I can't do if we're outside that five-year window or at that five-year window, we still have enough time to kind of plan for what do I want that eventual exit to look like? If I'm hiring a junior person, if I'm kind of bringing them along, if I'm you know doing the things that I need to do and ultimately transition, structure a sale, kind of move on. You have to keep in mind that Whoever you sell to will generally want you to stay on and work for another twelve to twenty-four months after the sale. So a lot of people, when I say five years, uh, you know, they think to they think to themselves, like, "Well, you're insane." Uh, You know, like it's not going to take five years to find a junior partner and train them up. And I would say, no, but it may take three years to find them, train them up. Get them in a position where they're ready and comfortable. Remember, like they have to agree to buy your practice in in the same way that you have to agree to sell it. So that that buyer has to get comfortable that this practice has value and that this is what they want to do.
2: And there's a veterinarian shortage right now. So, you know, I think five years minimum is totally on point.
3: So like if you're planning to retire at 60 or, or 55 or whatever it is, you know, five years minimum and really the longer- You have the better. I like to kind of tell people like, look, like when you think about this, even 20 years in advance. You should be kind of in your head thinking about like, okay, well, what does that mean for the structure of the practice that I'm trying to create, right? Like, do, do I want a bunch of juniors hanging around, uh, you know, or do I want to just partner up with a couple of senior people, right? Exactly. All of these things kind of lead you down the path of what do I want my eventual exit to look like? So the sooner, the better, if we're within five years, our option set starts to get you know, kind of limited in terms of what's available.
2: I know I have one of our current veterinarians we work with. She um, has her retirement date already set and it's the age that her youngest child gets out of college. Um, So she's like, "I'm, I'm done on that day. So, you know, all these personal things and business things can overlap and help you figure it out.
3: That's exactly right.
2: Yeah. All right. Well, Rick, how can practice owners determine the true value of their business? Like how?
3: You know, this is always a hard one. Because, like anything, it depends, right? You know, a what is anything worth, right? If we go back to, you know, economics 101, anything is worth what a willing buyer and a willing seller are willing to pay for it at a point in time. Generally, I'll give you a couple of just range of metrics. Okay. So, generally, if you're EBITDA, so earnings after you've paid yourself your salary, like earnings after owner's comp. If that number is less than a million dollars, then your practice is generally worth somewhere around six times. Okay. Somewhere around that six times our, our earnings level. If you're between a million to five million, those numbers start to creep up, up to somewhere between eight to 10. And then once we get to these, you know, sort of big practices, these mega practices, you know, five to $10 million of EBITDA is where we really see those like 10 to 12 to maybe even 15 times multiples start to come into play. So first off, we can use that size metric to try and determine valuation. We then need to kind of overlay on top of that who our buyer is or who our intended buyer is, right? Right. Because if we're one of these five to $10 million practices and yet we think that we're going to sell to our junior analysts that are coming along, I'm just going to tell you I've been doing A long enough to tell you that. It's going to be exceedingly difficult for them to finance that. Right. Mm -hmm. So, now there are ways that we can work around that. There are ways in which we can, you know, maybe borrow some money, have the company borrow some money, do some other things, you know, to try and get around that. The reality is, is that those practices, if we're really going to get a full sale multiple, it's going to be very difficult to do it if we're planning on just handing it off to G2. Okay. Normally we have to. You know, sell to an aggregator or a private equity firm or something else like that in order to make that happen. That's probably the most generic answer that I can give you is just looking at those size ranges and thinking about what my multiples are. You know, there are other factors that flow into it, some of which you can control, some of which you can't, right? So, growth we talked about is very important. If you're in one of these, you know, super positively, you know, demographic, you know, dynamic markets where populations are growing and pet populations are growing. And geez, it seems like every day when I open the door, there's one more client that shows up that I had no idea about, then that's great. And you generally will command a higher multiple. And if you're located in an area where maybe that's not the case, uh, you know, then actually you probably are gonna get less of a multiple. Sometimes that market scarcity can work for you. So if you're the only game in town, then that's normally worth a premium versus if you're surrounded by, you know, overpenetration of vets. There's a lot of individual factors that go in on it. But if I were to just like give you a baseline for planning purposes, I would just say, hey, if you're sub a million dollars in EBITDA, which most people are, if you're sub a million dollars of EBITDA, you're worth about six times, you know, just kind of back of the envelope. Between a million and a million five, eight to ten times, and then over five, that's where the you know ten to fifteen multiples you know start to come out and see the sunshine. The other thing that I would just say about this is, is that it's a very interesting question because theoretically, you need to make that assumption based on where your earnings are going to be when you sell it. Right. Right. So if we're doing our planning 10 years down the road and we're growing at, you know, seven percent, well, our practice may have doubled in size by the time that 10 years down the road comes to. So frequently this is a little bit more of an academic exercise than it is anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when you actually get involved in the sales process is when you'll know. But if you're just trying to, you know, figure out what's my net worth today, then those multiple ranges are generally close enough.
2: I love talking about how we can help our veterinarian clients increase the enterprise value of their business. So obviously there are things like, you know, their operations in their office, you know, their staff, um, the impact of technology and innovation. What what can you speak into how to increase the enterprise value?
3: Absolutely. So the first is, you know, once again, if we think about those range of margins that we talked about in the space, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I've got at the low end, about 10%. Of my margins and at the high end, about 25% margins. If you're earning 25%, you really should be thinking about, like, hey, is there a way that I can trade off some of my earnings for a little bit more growth? Right. Cause I'd much, much rather as a buyer, see a business that's doing 20% and is growing quickly than see a business that's at 25%, but just is kind of flatlined. Growth matters a lot. And so things like advertising, things like marketing, all of these things can be helpful if you're at that high end of the scale. Things like investing in technology, making yourself more efficient, you know, those types of things. You know, those are businesses where we think investment can really help turbocharge the amount that somebody's willing to pay. Okay? That multiple side of the equation. Awesome. If you're on the low-end side of that margin, then we really need to go back through and start to think about like, okay, well, how do I get to the high-end side of that margin? Do I have what I'll call a comfortable practice, right? Have I solved operational problems or work headaches by just throwing people at the problem, right? Uh, And so I've got a cost structure that's maybe a little too high. And I'd like to. You know, do I have really, really prime and gorgeous real estate? And maybe I don't need that. Maybe I can get away with something a little bit less nice. Whatever you need to do to try and increase that operating margin, you know, at that low end of the margin range, I think will help. And then last but not least, if all you're after, right? If all you're after is I want the highest multiple for my practice. You know possible then partnering up with a couple other veterinarians to form a practice like a group of veterinarians you know the data will tell you that that group of veterinarians with a larger business is going to be worth more on a multiple basis than a smaller practice is there's just no denying that you know multiple so increase like- that we talked about going from six to ten to 15. Right. So one of the easiest ways is to find, you know, four or five, six of your friends and put everybody together and say, like, yeah, you know, we're not five practices that each earn one million dollars and thus trade it six times. So total enterprise there, five practices, five million times six, 30, you know, the six, the five of you splitting 30 million dollars. Right. All right. You can instead say, no, 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 we're one practice that makes $5 million a year. And people look at you and be like, oh, $5 million practice, that's worth more like eight to 10. So somewhere between 40 to 50, right? Like that's, there's an easy arbitrage there.
2: All right. Now,
3: the trade-off to that is you have to be a partnership. And some people don't play nicely in the sandbox with others. And you know who you are. We don't have to like (laughs) identify them. Uh, But some people don't want to share a receptionist and don't want to have to answer to somebody about how many hours they worked last month or didn't work last month or any of those other things. And so if they're not willing to do that, then they prefer to be standalone. And once again, you know, it's really your choice how you live your life. So
2: great points. So good. So good to have you here. I want to just kind of close with with a closing question. Yep. What is the one piece of advice that you would give to a new practice owner?
3: New practice owner, and I'm going to bring it right back to the top, which is where we started, which is save. Okay? Like save. It may feel like I know if you're a new practice owner you're going to view savings as okay, well, I'm investing back into my business and that's great, right? Like we're going to invest back in that business, that's fine. We need to invest in that business. But when you get to retirement, you need to have, you know, IRA accounts, 401k accounts depending on, you know, how you decide to set these up. Uh you need to have other savings that aren't just your practice, right? It is important. For small business owners to not think that just because they own the business that that's what they're going to be able to retire off of, because those individuals normally wind up in a problematic situation when it actually comes to retirement. Right. So,
2: and the sooner uh, you can start, the better.
3: Play it early, play it often. That's yeah.
2: right. That's awesome. Right. Thank you so much. Such
3: you are a pleasure. So to very welcome. The
2: show today. We'll wrap it up.
3: All right. Thanks yeah. so much, Marsh. Yeah.
1: No, that was great. That was very interesting. A, a lot of really simple easy to understand practical advice. But you know, Marcia, it seemed to underline, while I was sitting here, it seemed to underline to me the importance of involving your financial advisor early on in this process. Because a lot of what Rick talked about are pretty simple things to talk about, but to put into practice in terms of saving and, and everything else, it seems like You'd be wise to have a financial advisor by your side doing all of this stuff. We
2: hope that's what everyone sees in this because that is exactly um, what is so key.
1: Yeah. And to that point, if somebody who's listening to this podcast thinks, I think I probably ought to have more conversations about this and they want to have them with you, how do they get a hold of you?
2: Yeah. Actually, call our office, 205 795 2013. You can also go to my website, which an easy way to remember that is meetwithmarsha.com and you can find all of our contact information and follow this show. Yes,
1: Absolutely follow the show. Rick, thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it.
3: Thank you so much. I appreciate you guys having me and uh, yeah, maybe I can even come on again sometimes oh, we would oh, love that's it that's
1: all in the <laughs> control of Marcia. <laughs> I'm
2: pretty sure that's going to happen. Awesome. <laughs> all
1: right. Awesome. Well, it's great. And one of the things you as listeners can control is whether you subscribe or not. And subscribing is easy. Hit the subscribe button. That way you will never miss another podcast. You will never miss another episode of this great podcast because it will be delivered to you automatically. And if you're so moved we humbly ask that you might rate it and share it with others to help spread the word about the podcast. On behalf of Marcia and everybody at RFG Advisory, I'm Bill Tucker urging you to do not wait. Go out and live your best life today. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Making Hay podcast. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. Visit our website at meetwithmarsha.com or give us a call at 205-795-2013. And don't forget to click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. Content here is for illustrative purposes and general information only. It is not legal, tax, or individualized financial advice, nor is it a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold any specific security or engage in any specific trading strategy. Results will vary. Past performance is no indication of future results or success. Market conditions change continuously. This commentary reflects the personal opinions, viewpoints, and analyses of Marsha Miller. It does not necessarily represent those of RFG Advisory, their clients, or their employees. This commentary should not be regarded as a description of advisory services provided by Marcia Miller, or RFG Advisory, or performance returns of any client. The views reflected in the commentary are subject to change at any time without notice. Advisory services offered by Investment Advisory Representatives, or RFG Advisory, LLC. RFG Advisory, or RFG, a registered investment advisor.